Hello, and welcome to our second lecture for week nine on Elizabeth Brake's article, Do Subversive Weddings Challenge a Metanormativity, Polyamorous Weddings, and Romantic Love Ideals? So a little bit about Elizabeth Brake. She is an associate professor of philosophy at Arizona State University. Her research is primarily in ethics and political philosophy. She's the author of Minimizing Marriage, Marriage Morality in the Law, and the editor of After Marriage, Rethinking Marital Relations. She has held a Murphy Institute Fellowship at Tulane, a Canadian Shirk Grant, and an ASU Provost Humanities Fellowships. She is currently working on a project on the state's role in disaster response. And she came up with the idea, uh, she coined this phrase, amata normativity, which we'll be talking about in this reading. So let's just get right into it. So Brake begins this article by talking about subversive weddings. That's the first section. So she writes, weddings are often seen as a way to express yourself. Within the constraints of traditional weddings, expressing yourself might mean picking just the right flowers, the right location, the right dress, but weddings can also be alternative or subversive. But this raises a question. If weddings are being customized in more, um, in more ways than the traditional wedding, the customization that happens in traditional weddings, how far can you go in a, a subversive wedding and still have it be socially recognizable as a wedding? And, Brake asks, what hangs on the answer to that question? That is, what are the social implications of whether an event is socially recognized as a wedding or not? So this is the central question that Brake will be looking at in this article, and I think the it's pretty it's uh, not complicated to understand, right? Subversive weddings are about messing with weddings um, in order to, for some, for some purpose. But if you mess with something too much, at some point it becomes something totally different. So in this case, we're looking at subversive weddings and whether there's still weddings and whether that matters or not. So Brake writes that this question is of particular interest in light of the use or the way subversive weddings are used, which is as tools of political protest that are aimed at changing the social beliefs, expectations, and values surrounding romantic love. So for example, she talks about same-sex subversive weddings that were about protesting the prohibition against same-sex marriage. Break writes, today, polyamorous subversive weddings express their participants' desire for recognition of their relationships as marriages and social acceptance of their relationships as having equal value to monogamous relationships. She names another kind of subversive weddings, sologamy, 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 which is a practice of marrying oneself and that this expresses commitment to loving, valuing oneself and seeks to gain social recognition that relationships with that our relationships with ourselves are of equal value to ro to our romantic relationships with others. Brake writes, subversive weddings challenge a metanormativity. So this is her the phrase that the term that she coined, and I think it captures a really important idea. So a metanormativity is the cultural assumption that a central, exclusive, romantic relationships, ro relationship is normal for humans in that it is a universally shared goal and that such, a, such relationships are normative in that they should be aimed at in preference to other relationship types. And she talks about um, later how part of this assumption is, so part of the assumption is that this is what everybody should be seeking, that everybody should be looking for and trying to find an exclusive romantic relationship with one other person that must be a central relationship in their life. And not only that this is what everyone should 
be doing with their lives is trying to find this one romantic relationship, but also that this kind of relationship is the kind of relationship in which everyone will flourish so that this will be the right fit for everyone. And um, Brake has a more extensive uh, challenge against this idea in her book, Minimizing Marriage. So she goes on, to successfully challenge amatonormativity, subversive weddings must do two things. First, change beliefs about the comparative value of relationship types, since amatonormativity is about valuing one very, very particular type of relationship above all others. So generally, this is a heterosexual, dyadic, monogamous, long-term relationship that's supposed to lead to marriage and babies and buying a house and all. We can, we can make a big list of what's part of this relationship. So the first thing, so that's got to be challenged by subversive weddings, challenged beliefs about the comparative value of relationship types, and they must still be recognized as weddings. So if we're going to figure out whether subversive weddings successfully challenge amatonormativity, we have to first ask, what is a wedding? So you might think that legal marriage is the same thing as a wedding. So in this view, weddings are whatever is associated with legal marriage. So a wedding is just the sort of thing that leads to legal marriage. On this view, many subversive weddings would not count as weddings. But, Brake argues, this is too narrow since rituals that are socially recognized as weddings vary cross-culturally and trans-historically, and these rituals that have been socially recognized as weddings do not always include legal marriage. So she says, talks about, for example, um, a mass wedding that celebrated 2,000 same-sex unions held on National Mall in Washington, D.C. in 1987. And it was a protest uh, against the prohibition on same-sex marriage in 1987. So, I mean, it just tells you how long that fight for recognition is. So, Brake is arguing that a wedding is not just equivalent to legal marriage. But obviously we don't want every social event to be within our definition of wedding, right? This doesn't seem right. If someone referred to a birthday party or a graduation ceremony as a wedding, you would rightly say that they were wrong. So there must be constraints on what is socially recognized as a wedding. Other wedding-like events seem to be fake or pretend weddings, like playing dolls or weddings in a movie. And you can imagine that people who deny that same-sex marriages are or can be marriages would have witnessed the, the mass wedding in 1987, the mass same-sex weddings in 1987, and also seen those as pretend. So from these examples, we can suggest a constraint we have our first constraint on what is socially what can be socially recognized as a wedding. A wedding need not initiate a legal marriage, but plausibly, a wedding initiates or is at least associated with a marriage. And this is broader than legal, so it could be uh, religious or just merely socially recognized as a marriage. So now we have a new idea to play with. Maybe... It's not about the actual initiation of a marriage that defines a wedding, but the participants' intentions to initiate a marriage. So stage actors, when they play at a wedding, they don't intend to marry. And on this uh, view, we can see why same-sex subversive weddings were weddings, because the participants intended to initiate marriages. But... Brake argues the intent to initiate a marriage can't be a necessary condition of a wedding. And here Brake talks about necessary condition and sufficient condition. 
So a necessary condition is something that has to happen in order for some in order for some other thing to occur. And a sufficient condition is something that on its own will pr produce that other thing. That's not not super clear, but let me give you an example. So let's say we're talking about ping pong. The player has to hit the ball over the net in order to win a point. This is a necessary condition. But hitting the ball over the net doesn't guarantee a point, so it's not sufficient, it's not enough for the player to get a point, but it's a necessary condition. It has to happen in order for, the, for there to be the possibility of the player getting the point. Because the player might hit the ball over the net and then there the other player volleys it back and they don't get a point. But we can think of some uh, rules that are sufficient conditions. So say in ping pong the rule that if the ball doesn't hit the table, then that player loses a point. So this is a sufficient condition. If the player's ball doesn't hit the table, then the player always loses the point. It's sufficient. It guarantees the other event. Hopefully that was clear and helpful. So Brake says the intent to initiate a marriage can't be a necessary condition of a wedding, meaning it can't be the case that for there to be a wedding, there must be an intent to initiate marriage. And Brake says, imagine someone going through a wedding ceremony as a practical joke with no intention to marry. It still seems likely that there would that it would be socially recognized as a wedding. And Brake argues intent to initiate a marriage can't be a sufficient condition for a wedding, meaning there being an intent to initiate marriage isn't enough to guarantee that there's a wedding. So Brake says, imagine someone who intends to initiate a marriage by participating in a birthday and is simply very confused. So Brake says, let us assume that what can count socially as a wedding piggybacks or is tied to what can count socially as a marriage. So now we get a, our rough kind of working definition of a wedding, which will be changed later. But for now, Brake defines a wedding as a public and socially recognized event that initiates a marriage. And right away she says, okay, there's problems with this. First, it leaves us, us with the question of what can be socially understood as a marriage. So she gives... Um, examples where there seems to be social recognition of a wedding but the marriages that these weddings initiate might not be socially recognized as marriage so she talks about self-marriages or marriages to people who have gotten married to the eiffel tower to the berlin wall to pets to lakes sky sea appalachian mountains the moon or uh, polyamory where there's multiple love sex relationships so we need to think more about marriages before we can think about weddings break writes what interests me about these subversive weddings is that the brides slash grooms slash participants want to invoke some aspects of mainstream marriage while extending some aspects and subverting other aspects so People who are participating in subversive marriages invoke symbolic aspects of weddings, symbolic parts of, of weddings, as well as the social significance of weddings, both to make a statement or to, yeah, to say something about their relationships and to change social beliefs about non-typical relationships, to say something more political. So for example, sologamists, that is not a nice sounding word. <laughs> it sounds like salami. So sologamists are expressing their self-love, and this is a challenge to metanormativity, which is what Brake is interested in. And how does it challenge metanormativity? Well, it challenges this idea that everyone seeks and flourishes in the same type of dyadic, so between two people, romantic sexual love relationships. It's saying, look, my relationship with me is also very important to my flourishing, which is not part of 
um, amount of normativity. So people who participate in vicarious or in sorry in subversive weddings seek to invoke some of the norms of marriage, commitment, love, trust, while disrupting other norms of weddings and marriage. For example, one person with one other person of the opposite sex. And there is a degree of sincerity about the project. It's not just done, it's not just done as parody or performance art. It's it's done for real. But are these still socially recognizable as weddings at all? Or are they so different from weddings that they become something else? So the problem is how far can weddings subvert social conventions while still being weddings? at least in part, sincerely being weddings. And Brick has a little um, clarifying phrase where she says that her view is that this proliferation of weddings is an interesting phenomenon and not a cause for concern. So she's not worried about subversive weddings being a bad thing. Um, she doesn't think we need to be concerned about subversive weddings. She thinks they're interesting and uh, I think she thinks they're good right that's a point she makes later in the paper and these subversive weddings are are also not a reason to question the legalization of same-sex marriage which is something that people have done so weddings she writes are distinct from legal marriage and their performance need not have legal implications so for example pet weddings don't we don't need to change the law of marriage or laws around bestiality because of pet weddings. We can have pet weddings and still have the same laws around marriage and laws around bestiality. But the performance of subversive weddings may do good things by challenging a matanormativity, which again is the false belief that everyone is seeking, that everyone is looking for, and everyone flourishes in the same kind of romantic, monogamous relationship between two people. Brake writes, this widespread norm of a matanormativity is harmful because it socially marginalizes relationships like friends. It tells us that friendships aren't, aren't as important as our romantic relationship. It creates this hierarchy of relationship types. It marginalizes single people. It marginalizes asexuals, polyamorous, and break even says women who experience greater social pressure to marry and to sacrifice in marriage. So I think we talked, I talked a few lectures ago about these negative tropes about single women, right? The crazy cat lady. I mean, crazy is also not a good term, but the, and also, and the spinster, right? Whereas men have more positive uh, tropes or stereotypes for being single, like the wild bachelor. But the question is, how far can beliefs, values, ex and expectations that surround romantic love be subverted by employing one of the central conventions that perpetuates these same beliefs, values, and expectations? And Brake says, okay, there are several questions in this question. Three, she, she identifies. One is a general philosophical question about how social conventions and norms and practices have meaning, what gives them meaning, and how those meanings change. And that's, she's not interested in this question. The second question is a sociological or, or psychological question of how conventions and related social pressures shape our behavior. And this she's also setting aside. The last question is the one she wants to look at whether an intentionally subversive wedding can change the conventions and beliefs surrounding romantic love if it is not socially recognized as a wedding, or indeed, if it is. And here we get the first articulation of the dilemma for the would-be subversive wedding planners. And this is going to come back a number of times. So this is the dilemma. On the one hand, Subversive weddings need to be socially recognized at weddings in order to subvert the meaning of weddings. If they're just, if they're just called something else, or, 
socially recognized as something else, then they're not going to be able to subvert the meaning of weddings because they're not going to be socially recognized as weddings. So that's the one horn of the dilemma, as they say. The other horn of the dilemma is if the event is socially recognized as a wedding, then does it just, does all the baggage of wedding just come with it? Do you have to carry all the beliefs, values, expectations that come with a wedding about marriage and what's happening, even as you're trying to subvert these expectations? And Brake says, this was actually a concern of some queer theorists, that if same-sex marriage was legalized, Rather than transforming marriage, same-sex marriage would just take on all the baggage of heteronormative um, marriages like young queer people feeling pressure to marry, maybe the same kind of gendered division of labor. And here she gives us an analogy um, that she gets from Hegel. So if someone lights a bit of wood on fire that's in a wood pile, they've committed arson. Even if they intended only to light that little bit of wood on fire and not the whole pile. So her point here is that intentions are not the only thing that determine the meaning of actions. The meaning of, of actions can also be determined through social convention and social recognition. So if someone goes through the action of, of having a subversive wedding with the intention to subvert some of the norms of weddings and marriages, they may not be able to deny the significance or socially assigned meaning given to it by other people just because the people holding the subversive wedding intend to um, subvert some of these norms just like the fire starter cannot deny that they committed arson. The socially defined nature of conventions also seems to entail that I can intend to do a socially defined action but fail to do so. So maybe I intend to wed my cat, but nobody sees it as a wedding and so it simply fails to be a wedding. And one might think this isn't a problem so long as you have a wedding with the right kind of people. Okay, so if it's not just my intentions in the subversive wedding to be subversive, I need my community to recognize that what I'm doing is subverting some things, rejecting some beliefs or values. Then maybe what we can do is just invite the right people. And break doesn't offer a super... Um, satisfying response to this she just says okay maybe that's true but let's think outside this quote right community outside of this right community we have these two problems again one this is the first horn that we already talked about she calls failed weddings there's no uptake or social recognition of the subversive weddings so subversive weddings are just failed weddings also known as not weddings at all and break asks does this matter? Because we might think, look, even if they're not recognized as weddings, we can still under we can still recognize and understand the intention. We can still see them as commitment ceremonies or expressions of love. But Brake says, look, the bride and groom or the people who are having the subversive weddings see themselves or wish to see themselves as having a wedding. So this matters at the very least, to these people. And insofar as the wedding, the subversive wedding, is aiming at social change, then it needs social recognition as a wedding. Otherwise, it's not subverse, it's not a subversive wedding. It's just a different thing altogether that's not subversive anymore because there's no values that it's kind of attacking or rejecting, and it's not a wedding. So the second option is this backfiring weddings. And Brake says that this is the more serious problem. And this is the one where even though you intend your wedding to be subversive, weddings just come with all these 
norms and expectations and values and beliefs and you can't get away from them even if your intention is to get away from them so break gives the example here of a queer poly person say a woman who when referring to her husband in the larger community is just perceived as exemplifying traditional norms is just seen as a woman with a husband and maybe the assumption just comes with all these um, beliefs and values assumptions of values that this person has tried to reject in their life and break says um, unless this person wants to disclose a bunch of personal information this might just be uh, what happens regardless of the actual facts of their relationship I'll stop there for now. We're just at the start of part two, wedding romances. So I will see you at uh, the next lecture. I guess not see you, but you know what I mean. Okay, bye. Okay, and welcome to part two of our lecture on uh, Elizabeth Brake and imaginormativity and subversive weddings. So let's get started on part two, wedding romances. Break writes, weddings are widely and popularly associated with a set of romantic yearnings, romantic desires, which are closely linked, she argues, to a consumerist wedding industry-fueled drive to achieve a certain presentation or expression of the couple's identity. These romantic desires directed at the other party are often seen as symbolized by and culminating in the wedding itself. And Brake notes that the wedding itself has become an object of desire for many, totally disconnected from the relationship. So think of this like tr this tr stereotype in movies with a woman who has a huge binder of wedding things. She's been dreaming about her wedding since she was um, little. And the, the wedding book is not about the relationship or the partner. It's just about the wedding itself. So Brake says the emotional force of wedding-related symbolism is why subversive weddings could be a particularly effective form of protests and where, subversive, and where subversiveness addresses a metanormativity or unfulfillable expectations of uh, romantic relationships this is a good thing, she writes. And she says, okay, wait, someone might object that weddings are not about primarily expressing romantic attitudes or romantic desires or romantic yearnings, as she calls them. Maybe weddings are about something else. Maybe they're about primarily expressing a desire to involve the community in your relationship. Or maybe they're an expression of transferring of property, the virginal... A bride being passed as property from father to husband. That's why um, dads walk brides down the aisles, the representative of this old um, passing of property. Or maybe weddings are about expressing that you have a bunch of money, which is always nice as a guest, I think. <laughs> but Brake says, okay, don't worry about that too much. She doesn't want to suggest that romantic desires associated with weddings are a historical or culturally transcendent or the only thing that weddings can represent. She merely wants to suggest that in some contemporary societies, weddings enact and ask the community to recognize certain romantic desires and the fantasy of their satisfaction that weddings are about the fantasy of certain romantic desires being satisfied and she says you know this makes sense because it it's not surprising it's not surprising that um, we might find wedding culture perpetuates unrealistic expectations or confused beliefs about romantic love and Brake says she wants to focus on a different set, a particular set of unrealistic expectations regarding romantic love that are, she says, disseminated through wedding culture, are a part of wedding culture. And she thinks this set of unrealistic expectations is actually is challenged by subversive weddings, and in particular, 
is challenged by polyamorous subversive weddings. And the two romantic myths that she wants to talk about are first, uniqueness and irreplaceability, and two, soulmates. So first, let's talk about uniqueness and irreplaceability. What does this, how does this, what's the shape of this myth? So it, the idea is that there's one unique, irreplaceable beloved in the sense that the lover loves no one else and could never love anyone else in this way. So I just heard Justin Bieber's song, Anyone, on the radio, and that, I think, perfectly captures this idea. So the chorus, the line is, you are the only one I'll ever love. Yeah, you. If it's not you, it's not anyone. So you're unique, you're the only one, and you're irreplaceable. If it's not you, it's no one. And some people, like Chris Bennett, have argued that uniqueness, that this myth of uniqueness and irreplaceable irreplaceability are important psychologically because they confirm our value. Other people like Eric Cave say that the desire for exclusivity is biologically inherent in erotic love. It's it's natural, it's biologically innate. And Brake's response to this is just to say, look, look at how given how often this idea that the that you are unique and irreplaceable to your lover given how often that is disappointed that the relationship ends that you find someone else that they find someone else we might ask whether these are good goals to have so now the second um, romantic unrealistic uh, romantic expectation that Brake wants to talk about and this is this idea of soulmates so she says soulmate this idea of soulmate goes beyond the idea of uniqueness and irreplaceability this desire to be unique and irreplaceable because it's not only that no one else currently or in the future could be your lover's beloved but that no one else ever could have been that that not only is it not happening now and won't happen in the future but it's just not possible. It's not a possibility. If you, if we're soulmates, then I'm the only beloved possible. And she talks about the um, Plato's famous myth of Aristophanes, which is is a really fun myth. But basically, the idea is that a long, long time ago we were paired, and I think we're back to back. And I always pictured us as like kind of these balls and i'm pretty sure in the myth of aristophanes he says that we moved by cartwheels but maybe that's something that my imagination has added in after the fact but basically we were paired and interestingly specifically mentioned same-sex pairs as a possibility and then we caused trouble and as punishment we were split and so our lives are about finding that that person that we were originally paired with and this is our soulmate and Brake says maybe this idea of soulmate is about protecting us from our or sheltering us from fears of contingency and contingency is just mean that things could have been otherwise so it's kind of the opposite to an idea of fated so maybe this idea of soulmate is about making us feel better about being our lives being contingent about our mortality and finitude because to be necessary to someone else to be someone else's soulmate makes us makes our life necessary but Brake says the presence of other particular others who become our romantic partners that's just contingent that could have been otherwise and if the relationship is contingent other loves were possible and I, I don't know if this is a totally satisfying response since I think if you believe in soulmates you believe in um, an idea of fate so you might not think that the presence of particular others in our lives is contingent but this is her response and I want to say look there might be other reasons that to reject this idea of soulmate so for example 
I think the idea of your partner being your soulmate may make it harder for couples to face challenges together in their relationship. Because if you and I are in a relationship, a romantic relationship, and I think we're soulmates, and there's a week where you are just driving me nuts, this is going to be a significant challenge to our relationship because it suggests that we're not perfect. And if we're not perfect together, we can't, we're not soulmates. And so this might be a really kind of radical challenge to our relationship. If my idea is that we're kind of perf- a perfect pair. But if you, if your idea of your romantic relationship is two people who made a choice to be together, then having a bad week is not a challenge to your relationship at all. You just have to decide whether you want to keep choosing that person. And it's also not clear to me why a soulmate is kind of sold as the romantic option, as the romantic story. But it's, it's not clear to me why it's the romantic story. In the soulmate story, I have no choice but to be with you. And in the not soulmate story, I choose to be with you, even though I don't have to. I don't have to be with you. I want to be with you. And it's not obvious to me that the having no choice to be with someone is more romantic. But that is a digression. So Brake goes on to say that Look, there's a conceptual link between recognizing the contingency of our relationship itself, the possibility of other lovers that leads you to recognize the other person's independence, that leads you to recognize that we're independent. If we can love others beyond our beloved, then we must be separate beings. We can't be a unity. And, you know, union is also a real uh, love kind of myth. Brake also argues that metaphysically, which just means about the reality of the thing or the way the thing is, acknowledging separateness and contingency is more accurate. So she's saying, look, the reality, the the situation really is that we are separate. We're not one. And the relationship is contingent. We could have loved other people. And she writes, ethically, the recognition, this recognition of otherness, of separateness and contingency may be the basis of a radical transformation from a self-centered love to an other-centered love. And she doesn't say much more about that, but that's maybe an interesting idea to think further about. In short, Brake writes, Revealing the desire to find one's unique soulmate and to be someone's unique soulmate, revealing that this is based on false beliefs and hence inherently unsatisfiable, could benefit people by encouraging a more realistic evaluation of their expectations and beliefs. And it also has implications for challenging a mononormativity, because if you recognize that the romantic desire for non-contingency, the romantic desire to be a unique soulmate, a fated uh, partner, if you recognize that this is not, that you can't satisfy this, and if you recognize that uniqueness and irreplaceability are often not satisfied, then these would be correctives to the amatonormative assumption that satisfying these things is a a necessary condition but not sufficient for human flourishing. So now we come to section three, polyamorous weddings. Brake writes, I've suggested that the psychological importance that so many attach to weddings comes from the drive to satisfy these romantic and existential desires for specialness, uniqueness, and union. And the wedding industry harnesses these desires to sell stuff. The specialness of the wedding comes to represent the specialness of the union. 
and this is plausibly explained by the fact that weddings serve as a capstone of romantic love narratives. And if you think of many of our fairy tales, the wedding is the end of the romantic narrative, right? It's courtship, 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 problems, shoe fitting, losing a shoe, and then they get married and that's the end, happily ever after after that. So Brake is saying here, look, it's plausible to think that weddings have all this kind of, um, all this idea that all these romantic desires are satisfied by the wedding, built into the wedding, because it is this kind of, in in a way, it's been described as the end of the relationship instead of the middle or, you know, near the beginning. The feminist analysis of marriage, break rights as a form of property exchange, also helps explain and capture some of these kind of wet, these uh, romantic yearnings. So Brake says, if marriage is a property relation and weddings then become an act of taking possession, it's the moment that you take possession of each other, then the person must be made into a thing since only things can be owned and their love becomes a thing that is possessed which fulfills the uniqueness irreplaceability desire. If I possess your love, if I own your love, you can't give it away to anyone else. Brake writes, weddings make static and permanent something that is by its very nature contingent and impermanent, the love relationship. I mean, think about the vows that we say at weddings, you know, in sickness and health, till death do us part, for richer or poorer, I mean, maybe not, right? (laughs) Maybe something changes in your relationship down the road. That means it's best for one of you or both of you to end the relationship. Brake writes, this reflects a difficulty in love, this tension between the desire to possess another person's love, to own a person's love, and the recognition that that person is free and a subject, a an autonomous subject. And this tension was something that Salt thought was essential to erotic love. And Brake says, look, even further, possessing another's love by making it by making change impossible is a problem. Because as Salt points out, don't we want love that is freely and spontaneously given? Don't you want don't we want partners who are who love us because they freely want to and choose to not because we own them or possess them and that they have to so now break moves into arguing that polyamorous subversive weddings challenge this she writes they do not necessarily challenge sexual exclusivity because polyamorous relationships can be sexually exclusive they're just sexually exclusive with a few more people what they do challenge is the is the love part so the challenge is not to sexual openness or sexual closedness what they challenge is the possibility that there can be multiple non-hierarchical romantic relationships and suggest even the desirability of this. Polyamorous subversive weddings celebrate romantic love without a unique irreplaceable beloved. Without they have commitment without exclusivity in the sense of one beloved only. And Brake says, look, of course polyamorous can go wrong. They can cheat. They can, you know, be bad partners. And she doesn't want to idealize um, polyamory. However, she says, the polyamorist ideal involves a commitment to arrangements that are agreed to through an ongoing process of honesty, communication, and consent. And they're, at least in this idealized form, not about a fixed relationship form. So this is challenges also desires for specialness desires for union and non-separateness, desires 
desire for the possession of the other's love because it acknowledges the ongoing contingent nature of relationships, which is also about recognizing the independence, the autonomy and uh, subjectivity of others. And, you know, we might look at this list of things that um, Break has given us and also think that these are going to be parts of healthy, good monogamous relationship, right? Honesty, communication, ongoing consent, ongoing choice in the relationship, responsiveness to people changing. And here in the article, uh, Break distinguishes polyamory from polygamy, which often um, people get get confused they think when you're talking about polyamory what you mean is polygamy and polygamy is about one man and many wives and um, usually has uh, religious is motivated by religious ideals and is focused on gendered spousal roles so this is not what she's talking about as challenging marriage ideals okay so this brings us to the final way break rights in which uh, polyamorous weddings flout the norms of weddings and marriages. Polyamorous weddings are weddings without legal marriages. They don't lead to legal marriages. And importantly, much poly- polyamorous writing has in fact opposed marriage. So here we have weddings without intention to marry. So Brake says, let's go back to the, those two horns of our dilemma and see how these weddings without marriages do. So this brings us to section four, weddings without marriages. So our first horn, option one, is failed marriages. So this is, sorry, failed weddings. So if weddings initiate marriages, which is what our um, definition the, our working definition argued, and if polyamorous arrangements are not marriages, are not intended to be marriages, then maybe their celebrations can't be weddings. And Brake says, look, this doesn't seem so bad. The, these events can still express intention um, to love and make commitments. And they may also begin to alter social norms and make political statements. Brake says we might want to push back on this by saying, well, you know, polyamorous marriages are marriages, so polyamorous weddings are weddings. But Brake says there's a better response. Polyamorous weddings are weddings that do not initiate marriages. So what we need to do is modify our definition of weddings. That's a better response. Let's revise our definition. She says this alternative seems to better reflect how some polyamorous actually understand their weddings because they don't think they lead to marriage. So we should reject the definition of wedding we've been working with. There can be weddings without marriages, social recognition of a relationship and a commitment without expectations of fixed roles, uniqueness, irreplaceability, soulmate status. On this alternative, weddings become commitment, like commitment ceremonies. And actually, we might ask what makes them different from commitment ceremonies or if they're just another type of commitment ceremony. So this type of revision to the definition of wedding might seem like a problem. Why wouldn't this suddenly include all kinds of events that celebrate relationships into this group weddings? So college reunions or sister annual sister holidays. And Brake's response is that commitment ceremonies are generally understood to celebrate loving, intimate relationships romantic relationships and there's no reason to think weddings couldn't be understood this way but she says polyamorous relationships may not all be sexual romantic ones some people in the poly relationship might have a loving friendship and the romantic status between members in a poly relationship can change over time and she says look why not see this not as a drawback but as a positive 
why not see it as a good thing? So if weddings could celebrate, also celebrate non-romantic loving friendships, this would be another contribution to challenging a metanormativity because it would help put meaningful non-romantic relationships on an equal footing with romantic relations. Brake writes the proliferation of subversive weddings and the commercial impulse to focus on weddings, not marriages, and this it relates back to what we talked about before, like the young girl in the romantic comedy who has this prepared this big binder with everything she wants for the wedding with, with nothing about what she wants the relationship to be like. This suggests that that socially in our in our culture weddings and marriages are already coming apart which suggests that the definition might already be changing from events which which initiate marriages to events that celebrate love relationships this diversification of weddings could challenge a metanormativity if it allows for the celebration of diverse kinds of love and if it detaches the symbolism of weddings from the satisfaction of romantic desires, weakening the social pressure to pursue romantic relationships at the cost of our other loving relationships, which is a metanormativity, so a challenge to a metanormativity. So are subversive weddings just still keeping all the baggage associated with um, romantic love ideals? So. Brake says, if weddings can't be detached from marriages and marriages are associated with romantic love ideals that are unfulfillable, then subversive weddings might backfire, reinforcing these romantic love ideals. So in the polyamorous context, my one and only might be replaced with my three and onlys. And Brake's answer is just that in some context, a polyamorous couple introducing themselves as spouses may actually, this might happen. They might serve to reinforce assumptions concerning marriage. But as subversive weddings grow in visibility, those assumptions will likewise be weakened. And I'll end it here. Have a great weekend and see you on Monday for our Zoom class. So remember, next Monday, no lecture. We have our last in class or in virtual class zoom um class my dog wants to go out and um also your second reading response is due this friday by 5 p.m okay so have a great weekend after that see you monday bye